Welcome to the Artipop podcast. As the founder of Artipop, I've always felt we live in a highly conventional era when it comes to motherhood. But also that change is near. Therefore, I created this podcast to give voice to different refreshing perspectives around motherhood and life in general. I've asked a journalist, Kaira van Wijk, to host this series for you. Let's use our feminine energy to shape the future. Welcome to the Artipop podcast. This is your host, Kaida. We're absolutely delighted to have Dr. Jane Goodall on, a true trailblazer who clearly doesn't need an introduction. In this episode, she touches on nature's secrets, what we can learn from chimpanzees when it comes to parenting and from the wild when it comes to climate change. Her stories of hope and the indomitable spirit of humankind will surely inspire. Well, let's start. Dear Dr. Jane Goodall, you're of course well known as a primatologist, anthropologist, advocate for climate change and high profile campaigner for animal conservation. You're considered the world's foremost expert on chimpanzees. We have asked you to talk to us in hopes we can learn from one of our closest relatives, the chimps, with regards to the start of every human life, birth, parenting, community life, gender roles, life balance, to learn from them and to get back in touch and cherish nature. Before diving into the life of chimpanzees, we would like to ask you a couple of questions about the secrets of nature and how humanity got to where we are today. So first of all, what parts of our human nature do you feel have been hidden from us, maybe forgotten, amidst our quest for economic development that we could tap back into? Well, I think the main thing is that we've lost our connection with the natural world and forgotten that we're part of it and depend on it. But what we depend on is healthy ecosystems, which is this complex interrelated collection of plant and animals that make up that ecosystem. And I see it as a tapestry. And every time one of those species becomes extinct, then it's like a thread pulled from the tapestry. And when enough threads are pulled, the tapestry hangs in tatters, the ecosystem collapses. And so we desperately need to get back to our relationship with the natural world. And we've lost wisdom. The wisdom where you make a choice thinking about how will this choice affect generations ahead? But we're not, today we're thinking how will this affect me now and how will it affect the next shareholders meeting and so on. Why did we start harming Mother Nature, the animals, and consequently also ourselves in such a severe way in the first place? Like so severe that if we don't change our behaviors, our societies, humans may go extinct. Where did it start? Well, I think it started with the agricultural revolution when people began, instead of having a hunter-gatherer sort of existence, they settled down. And as they settled down, they began to grow food and they cleared land to grow food. And as they got more food, then the numbers multiplied and went on multiplying. So they needed to destroy more environment for more food. And then when the Industrial Revolution came along, it got even worse. And I think that started the the drive that 
the, the greedy nature of humans came out as business owners struggled to get more wealth and more power and fierce competition between businesses in the same field as they tried to get more, uh, more labor and more customers. And this began the exploitation of humans and animals. Animals were exploited to be beasts of burden and humans were exploited to be cheap labor. And it's gone on from there. And according to your knowledge and your intuition, what is needed right now to shift the future of our species from destruction into a prosperous one? I think that, first of all, we need to alleviate poverty because there are millions and millions of people living in poverty. And in that situation, you can't afford to make ethical choices in how you behave. You just have to behave in a way to keep yourself alive. So you'll buy the cheapest food. You can't afford, as the rest of us can, to ask whether its production harmed the environment, was cruel to animals, as in factory farming, um, whether it's cheap because of unfair wages or sweatshops. And if you're out in a, in a rural area, like the communities in the developing world, you're going to cut down the trees because you're desperate to grow more food to feed your family as your land becomes overused and infertile and your population grows. So we have to find ways for these people to make a living without destroying the environment. So those are the main things. And then we have to address our unsustainable lifestyles where so many people have so much more than what they need. And, you know, we have to think about our human population growth, because right now there's more than 7 billion of us. And already we're using up some of nature's finite natural resources faster than nature can replenish them. Because of this crazy idea, we can have unlimited economic development on a planet with finite natural resources. 2050, it's estimated there'll be closer to 10 billion of us. So if we don't establish a new relationship with nature, what's going to happen? Where do we start? Do we start individually? Should it come from politicians? What do you think? Well, I think it's important for people to know that every one of us makes some impact every day because people look around at all the problems facing us on the planet and they feel helpless and hopeless and so sink into apathy and do nothing. And what we need to do is share the good news stories, all the amazing people and amazing projects around the world that are reversing um, and healing some of the scars that we've inflicted. So we, we really need to have a wake-up call that everybody needs to take action in whatever way they can. And businesses need to develop ways of more ethically producing their their goods, and consumer pressure plays a major role there because if you don't buy things because they're not ethically produced or sourced, then the company is going to change and it's happening. And, you know, there is much greater awareness around the world now. And I think this COVID pandemic has been like a wake-up call because people have seen how things should be and could be 
you know, birds being heard in the cities and cleaner air and cleaner water, even if it was only for a short time. It's made people wake up to the fact of how badly we're harming not only the planet, you know, nature, biodiversity, but ourselves and our health and that of our children. We also want to talk to you about parenting and what we can learn from chimps. For six years, you have studied the social and family interactions of wild chimpanzees. Could you please tell us what a chimpanzee community looks like? Is there some kind of system with leaders, elders, caretakers for the young and the sick? Nothing quite like that. No, you have uh, a community, which uh, Gombe has never exceeded 50. Some places I gather it's more. Uh, there's one alpha male. Male, it's definitely a male-dominated society. They're very territorial, and the males of a community seldom more than six in a community of top-ranking males. So then, of course, there's a lot of adolescents and so on. But anyway, these top-ranking males patrol the boundary of their territory, and if they see neighbors, they'll give chase. And if they catch an unfortunate victim, well, that'll be the end of that, that chimpanzee because the, the attacks are brutal. So within the community, uh, males are dominant. Females have their own dominant system. There's usually one dominant female. They have their first baby around 12, 13, one baby every five years, very long childhood where the child is totally dependent on the mother for the first three and a half years, dependent on her for transport and breastfeeding, continues to breastfeed, although less often and more for comfort after that, and begins traveling on, on the child's, you know, by itself until age five. And then a new baby is born. The older child does not move away, but remains emotionally dependent on mum. And I think this long childhood is important for them as for us because they have a lot to learn. They have their own culture, different ways of using objects as tools and so forth. And that all has to be learned. It's not instinctive. You already talk about the difference between males and females in the community. Are there other type of community roles with regards to parenting within a chimpanzee community? Well, I should have said that Chimpanzees don't move around in a troop like baboons and gorillas and so on. Sometimes they go around alone or a mother with her dependent young. Sometimes it's a couple or three females together and the young spend a lot of time playing. Sometimes a male is by himself. Sometimes a group of males hang out. Sometimes the whole community or most of it comes together when there's a new food available, a new fruit becomes ripe, for example. And so within this community, the parenting is only the mother. What the male does, his role is to protect the area and the resources for his females and young. Until recently, when we can do DNA profiling, we haven't even known who the fathers were because chimps are very promiscuous. So the role of child raising is the mother's, but as she gets older, and has more offspring, the older siblings, of course, especially the females, uh, help a lot with the child raising, carry the baby around as soon as the mother will let it. And uh, the males, however, 
have been known to adopt. The elder sibling will adopt a younger sibling, but top-ranking males have been known to adopt unrelated infants and save their lives. So although the bulk of the of the duties fall on the mother, the male does play a role. And you already mentioned that chimps have a long childhood. Could you please describe that childhood? Well, I, I sort of have, you know, for the first three, three and a half years, the, the infant will be almost totally dependent on the mother. So if she dies in that time frame, the infant will almost certainly die because it's so dependent on her milk. So even if the infant's adopted, um, the others can't feed it, so they usually die. So during the five years before the next baby is born, the older child will share the nest with the mother, ride on her back gradually less often, suckle gradually less often. And the males tend to start moving away for short periods much earlier than the females. So the males are very attracted the young males to the adult males. They sort of hero worship them. Uh, but when they start moving off to join the males when they're about six or seven, they want mum to go with them and sometimes throw tantrums if she, if she won't. So they are quite exploitative. If an older child is tired of the mother feeding on termites, which she may do for four hours, the older child is likely to pick up the infant and move off with it, which is a kind of kidnap. And then the mother has to follow, so it's quite amusing. What else does a chimp mother do to bond with her baby? Like, are there small rituals? No, it's just a lot of affection and play. Mm -hmm. And social grooming plays an important part. And responding to the infant's whimpers when they get into distress, climb up a tree and can't get down again like a kitten. And there are good mothers and bad mothers. The good mothers are protective, but not overprotective. And the main thing is they are supportive. So they will support their child. So even a low-ranking female will rush to protect her child if that child gets into a fight with the offspring of a higher-ranking female. And the mother, who the, the subordinate mother, will rescue her child from this fight even though she's pretty sure she'll be attacked by the higher-ranking mother. What is the sleeping behavior of a mother and a child chimpanzee? Is there something very particular about it? Mother and child share the same nest for five years at night until the next baby is born. And then we've even had one example where the older child insisted on pushing in yeah. with the mother and the baby. Normally, they make their own little nest close to mum. How do chimp parents usually discipline and teach their young? Well, they seldom use physical punishment when the child is small, like a little infant. Instead, they distract. So if the infant is being irritating, mum is trying to fish for termites with a grass tool, and the infant tries repeatedly to grab the tool, then the mother will start tickling with one hand while carrying on termite fishing with the other. Yeah. Something we really can learn. I've, I feel it's so important when raising our children that a child isn't punished for something they don't yet know is wrong. And I've seen that happen. Makes me very angry. I remember one, one little girl and she'd accidentally spilt some milk, just accidentally. 
And the mother said, well, we'd better go off and have a beating. I, I was utterly shocked. Teaching them should be more about play, what to do, what not to do. You know, we have the advantage of words. So by the time the infant can understand words, we can just gently explain, no, we mustn't do that. That's not a good thing to do. Mm-hmm. And then only when the child is openly defiant can we get sterner. We should never administer physical punishment, let alone a beating. This was in an airport, and that mother took the little girl off, sobbing, into the ladies' room to beat it. It was awful. And when you think of the chimps and the way that they parent, what aspects stand out to you that contradict with what we modern humans typically do? What can we still learn from them? Well, I think I've listed all the things I think we can learn from them to be supportive, to be protective but not overprotective, to be affectionate, a lot of play, and distracting the young until they've learned that they shouldn't do it. Do you feel we've moved away from that? Do you think that us humans were like that as well, but we changed because of our modern societies? Well, some mothers certainly have. They don't have much to do with raising their children at all. Children go off to daycare or there's somebody to look after them in the family. I mean, used to have nannies. Uh, So... But but the biggest problem with our children today is that they are now wedded to electronic devices and some children never get a chance to bond with nature. And so having environmental education in school curricula, I think is really, really important. And especially for little children in kindergarten, outdoor classrooms, very important. So the child learns to play in the dirt and watch a caterpillar make a pupa and then see the butterfly emerge and the wonder that that is and buds bursting into leaf these little tiny buds full of this glorious spring greenery and a flower opening into its beauty from a bud so we we need to have our children reconnect with nature so that they learn to love it and then want to protect it. Are there already great examples of outdoor classrooms around the world? Yes, they are happening around the world. I know of quite a few, and we're pushing for this all the time with our our own Roots and Shoots program for young people, Roots and Shoots, which is from kindergarten, even preschoolers are in groups sometimes, um, right through and beyond university. How do you pick which schools, for instance, to work with? Like, do these children come to you with their talents and their interest in nature, or how does it work? It depends, and it's different in every country. It's very uh, bottom-up. It's very grassroots. So a group of children get together and talk about what they care about, and all they have to do is choose three projects between them. They don't all have to do every project, but one to help people, one to help animals, one to help the environment because everything is interrelated. So there's a website. Some people learn about us from a website. Often it's word of mouth spreading from one school to another as a child moves schools. It's in 65 countries now and growing all the time. Wonderful. 
And I'm sure there's science behind this as well, but what exactly does nature do with children? Like how does it work with their system? Well, it gives them this feeling of, of magic and awe and wonder. If the next generations aren't better stewards than we've been, that is the end of us. Do you think we're still in time? The point is that there is a window of time, although climate change is producing terrifying results now, which have long been predicted, only nobody listened, and loss of biodiversity, you know, destroying ecosystems. And all of this is really, really bad. I mean, look at, look at what's happening. Look at the droughts and the floods. Look at the terribly, the, the frequency of the really bad hurricanes and typhoons. Look at the fires burning. And that's all because of changing weather patterns. And they've changed all over the world. And people everywhere, I mean, yes, the poor are suffering worst because they have less ability to, to, to get out of a bad situation. But now the wealthy countries are suffering as well. And the flooding right now in New York and New Jersey, people are actually dying from the flooding and the floods have poured down into the subways and the, the, the trains and the, air, the flights are, are stopped. You know, in other parts of the country, it's drought and fires all over the West Coast. That's in the U.S. So, you know, we've, we've, we've gone very far. We're reaching the point at which there may be no return. But I believe, along with other scientists, that there's a window of time. But, and it's a big but, we've got to get together and every single one of us do our bit, remembering that every day we make some impact on the planet and we get to choose what sort of impact we make. What do we buy? What do we eat? What do we wear? And, you know, one thing that's really, really important is to move towards a plant-based diet. Partly from my perspective, it's the cruelty involved in factory farms, um, wildlife markets, and so on. But the impact on the environment is devastating as billions of animals need to be fed Huge areas of land are laid fallow to grow the corn, the grain to feed them. More grain grown to feed animals than to feed humans who are starving. And water, increasingly scarce in some places because of extended droughts. An awful lot of water is used to change plant to animal protein. And uh, finally, all these animals produce methane gas, which is one of the really virulent greenhouse gases, fortunately not as common as carbon dioxide, which comes from burning fossil fuel. But carbon dioxide and methane gas, you know, they form part of these so-called greenhouse gases that circle the world and trap the heat of the sun so that stopping emissions is something desperately important for governments to take on board with this COP26. That's going to be an absolutely crucial gathering of heads of state and big business because we simply cannot go on with business as usual. The planet won't stand for it. It's reaching the end of its tether. Yeah, we need to act now, all of us. And we can. 
there, there are, you know, it's happening. That's the thing. It's happening. People know how to do it. And we need to move to renewable energy, the sun, the wind, the tide. We need to turn away from intensive, uh, I call it industrial agriculture, with fields and fields of monocultures and GMO crops and massive use of chemical pesticides and herbicides and um, fertilizer and killing the soil. We're actually killing the soil, partly through toxic chemicals and partly because soil erosion, when the wind comes, soil is being blown away. So, you know, we must take action now, but there is this move towards regenerative farming where you change monocultures into farming that works with nature and not against it, and permaculture, same sort of thing, small family farms instead of these vast uh, monoculture fields. And so we know what we should be doing. Do we have the will to do it? That's where I think young people are rising up because they understand it's their future that's at stake. You know, I get very angry when I hear people say, oh, it's the younger generation's responsibility. It isn't their responsibility. It's their challenge. It's our responsibility. Share the stories of places that we utterly destroyed, which, given a chance, given time, sometimes some help, can once again support nature and biodiversity. They may not be exactly as they were before, but nature will come back given a chance. Animals on the brink of extinction can be given another chance. And um, I think of Frank Manthe in Australia who saved the bilby, which would have been extinct but for him and the group that he founded. Are chimpanzees as quote-unquote materialistic as we humans are? Chimpanzees so like us in almost every way, you know. Um, the big difference is the explosive development of our intellect, which probably triggered mainly when we developed a spoken language so that we can discuss things and bring people together to discuss a problem and teach children about things that have happened and things that might happen, um, which, of course, animals can't do, although their communication is very sophisticated. And they're way, way, way more intelligent than anybody used to think. And they're sentient. Every one of these domestic animals crowded into a factory farm has, can feel fear and, and terror and pain, just as they can feel contentment and happiness. And so uh, I lost my thread there. What, what was the question you said? <laughs> I was wondering um, if they are as materialistic as humans are. Like, do they have like this same consumption behavior that they hold on to, like a certain stick, for example? They are slightly better than baboons. Like, I've seen chimpanzees feel a fruit on the tree, and if it's not ripe, they'll leave it on the tree. Whereas a baboon will always just pick everything, and if it's if it's not ripe, they'll drop it on the ground. Um, but basically. Chimpanzees are probably as would be as materialistic as we are if they had the requisite, you know, abilities that we have. They're so like us, you know, that I don't even think of them as animals. 
And people assume they're my favorite animal, but they're not. They're too like us. <laughs> my favorite animal is a dog. Is there anything else apart from what you just mentioned about parenting, for instance, that chimpanzees have taught you about life in general? Well, I think what I've learned from it and what I point out to people is because they are our closest living relatives, that means we can step back and say, yes, but we're different. And what is that difference? And as I've said, it's the explosive development of our intellect. I mean, of course, there are other differences, but that one is the main one. And if we realize that we are the most intellectual creature on the planet, it's utterly bizarre that we're destroying our planet. It's our only home. We know that. We don't want to live on Mars, which at one time people thought might be possible. And it's because we've lost wisdom. We're thinking about short-term gain rather than protecting the environment for the future. You know, because we have language, we have been able to develop, well, a, a series of things which we teach our children. This is right and that is wrong. You know, for Christians, it's summarized in the Sermon on the Mount. You mustn't kill, you mustn't steal, and so on. But all religions have developed this moral I don't know what to call it, a moral... Compass? Yes, something like that. So, you know, we teach our children, this is right and this is wrong. And the sad part of this is that you can have children taught on both sides of a conflict so that children in some of the extremist Islam groups are taught that you'll be rewarded in heaven if you put on a suicide vest and blow innocent people up. They're not acting against the morals that they've been taught. That's scary. Brainwashing, we would call it. But it's going on all the time. However, every single major religion that ever has been, I think, if you go to the roots of the religion, the purity of it, has the same golden rule. Do to others as you would have them do to you. And today, it's desperately important that that others includes animals and Mother Nature. And if everybody obeyed that golden rule, then the world would be a wonderful place. Does nature, the way wild animals live, offer any solutions to the problems us humans have imposed on the earth? Well, I think we need to realize that, that there is intellect, I mean, some top scientific brains from Einstein on have agreed that there is an intelligence behind the creation of the universe. And this isn't really answering your question, but within nature, there is this intelligence. And when I talk about the need for children to experience nature, you know, when I'm in nature, particularly the forest, I feel so closely connected with this great spiritual power, whatever this spiritual power is. Um, we can say it's God or Allah or, or Brahman or whatever religion we have, or we can simply say that it's the force of nature. But nature, nature will survive. We may become extinct and we will have harmed 
many species and environments in doing in, in, as we become extinct. But nevertheless, nature will rebound. Nature has rebounded from all kinds of terrifying things in the past, ice ages and, and um, meteorite clashes and everything. Nature will find a way to come back, but we won't. Once we're gone, we're gone. And that's that. I think it's important for people to realize that top scientific minds are talking about intelligence behind the universe. And when scientists say, oh, well, no, we understand about the origin of the universe, it was the Big Bang. And sure, the Big Bang, which they've worked out quite well, uh, scatters up off into planets and suns and things like that. But you still have to say, Yes, but what created the Big Bang? That's fascinating to think of. I think so. In the beginning, you already touched on hope. That's very important for you, of course. And um, last year, you started a tremendously inspiring podcast that I've also been listening to called Hopecast. And you have your new book coming out. It's the Book of Hope, a survival guide for trying times. What has been the most hopeful story you've heard as of late? Hmm. Oh, there's so many, 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 many hopeful stories. One that's actually in the book, and it's two Chinese men. And uh, one lost his arm, both arms, when he was oh, 19 or something, because he touched a downed electric wire. The other one was blind. And the blind one, was absolutely losing hope by that they they'd been friends since they were little children, they'd grown up together, they were at school together. And when they were 26 and the blind man was feeling hopeless, the one with no arms said, Well, you know, what we need to do is to take action to do something. So we feel less hopeless. Oh, but what can we do? says the blind man. I'm blind and you don't have any arms. Well, what they decided was that when they were young, the, around them, the village, the environment was beautiful and lush and there were birds and the water was clean. But industry had come in and polluted the water and cut down the trees. So they decided they would restore the trees. So how did they do that? Well, they didn't have any money. So they took cuttings off the trees that were left and the man with no arms told the blind man where to cut off a branch and they went round you know blind man held on to the sleeve of one of the armless men's shirts and they were able to restore literally thousands of trees around their village and then because it made them feel so good when the trees began to grow they set off and they traveled over large areas in China, planting trees and seeing nature come back. So that illustrates the indomitable human spirit. Don't give up. Who would think? And that's what one of them said. Anybody who comes after us will be amazed to find that a blind man and man without any arms nevertheless left them a beautiful forest. That's a beautiful story. Do you maybe, because I'm curious, just have another one that you're like, oh, that's also such a good message of hope? Well, I think some of these projects where an absolutely devastated place has been 
once again made beautiful. And there's, there's a great story in, in the UK of a farm that wasn't doing terribly well. They decided that they'd see what happened if they let it go back to nature. And it was an area with little hills and two little streams. It's now become a national park. Tourists come from all over the world. The animals have all come back and people go to, to watch animals in this, what was once a derelict farm. And it's part of what we're calling rewilding. And in Europe, many countries have joined together and set aside land this linked by corridors of trees and animals are coming back, some of which have been extinct for years. Like they've reintroduced wolves into parts of, of Europe and reintroduced, you know, various other animals that haven't been seen for maybe a hundred years. And so it just shows what we can do and what we have to do. It's happening in other countries too, this rewilding. I'm so fascinated about this concept of rewilding. Is there anything we can do individually to rewild on a small scale? A lot of people are rewilding their, their gardens. Instead of having nice, neatly manicured lawns, they're letting wildflowers grow and they're planting um, species that will attract butterflies and bees. And in some cities, there's a real effort to do urban tree planting so as to bring nature into inner city, which previously was just concrete. And when you do that, crime drops, and they're linking together these green urban areas so that wildlife is coming back into the cities. And I find that something that, you know, so all of us can take part in. Uh, organic, growing organic food in the city, in our window boxes, um, growing things that will attract pollinators, which are in big trouble because of pesticides. And we need to do as much of this as we individually can, because climate change is adding another threat to already endangered species. Yeah, to encourage biodiversity. And I guess this is also a great task for children, I think, to engage in. Our Roots and Shoots groups are definitely very much involved in, in these projects. Yeah, yeah. Why is this message of hope so important to you? I think that without hope, if people lose hope, that is the end, especially if young people lose hope. That's why I began Roots and Shoots, because young people um, back in the early, late, late 80s, early 90s, they were depressed, angry, apathetic on every country I was visiting as I traveled around the world. And when I talked to them, they all said more or less the same, well, you've compromised our future and there's nothing we can do about it. In other words, they lost hope. And if you lose hope, you become apathetic and you do nothing. If you don't have hope that what you do is going to make a difference, why bother? You know, what's the point? Eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. So. When people lose hope, it's very often because they look around at the global things that are happening to the environment and to society, and they just feel helpless. 
what can I as an individual do? And that's why this message, every one of us can make a difference every day, is so important. So if you've lost hope because you're concerned about what's happening around the world, change the way you think. Think about where you live. What is it where I live that I could do to make things a little bit better? And then roll up your sleeves and take action. Try and get others to help you. And if you see that what you've done is truly making a difference, that gives you more hope and that leads to more action. And the more hope and the more action you take, the more you will inspire others to join you. So that, you know, hope is tremendously important. What you do does make a difference. And if everybody makes ethical choices, the world will be a much better place. And it's really important as I've said, to alleviate poverty so that everybody can make ethical choices in what they buy and eat and wear. Yeah. It's very important that children learn the true nature of animals, that they are sentient beings, that they can feel. Um, you know, I was taught at Cambridge when I went to get a, a degree, having been with the chimps for two years, I was told I couldn't talk about the chimpanzees having personalities, minds, or emotions, because those were unique to us. And that was, that was in the early, mid-60s. So thanks to the chimps being so like us, and Hugo van Nauwijk, my husband, his film, and stills, the scientists just had to believe that we're not the only beings with personalities, minds, and emotions, which, of course, anybody who shared their life with, a, with an animal knows anyway. But science couldn't prove it. Well, now science has found ways to prove these things. So science has proved that animals are sentient. And so it's really, really important that children learn to treat animals kindly. It's been shown that children with a history of cruelty to animals turn out to be perpetrators of domestic violence, for example. And I think all of the school shootings the, the young person responsible had a history of cruelty to animals. I wanted to conclude with a final question. In previous talks, you said something along the lines of every individual is a master of change one way or the other. You actually touched on that as well, to really take your own responsibility. What would you like to say to every new mother, every new parent out there who's listening right now? Do you have a message for them? Well, I think the message to, to um, new parents is how you treat your child is going to be very, very important, not only for the development of that child, but the role that that child will play in creating a better future. And I think I was lucky to have a really amazing, supportive mother. So I was born loving animals. And she supported that love. She didn't get mad at me when I was one and a half and she came and found I'd filled my bed with earth and earthworms. She said, you know, Jane, I came in. I mean, I don't remember this. I was one and a half. But she said, you were looking at them as though you were wondering, how did they walk without legs? And children have this curiosity. I remember a little boy, age three, and he was watching a snail. You know how sla snails glide along. And he was obviously wondering, 
what's making it move. So he put it on a window pane and ran inside to watch from the other side. I mean, that's, that's innovative. That's amazing. So support the child in what the child loves. Don't try and push your child to do something just because you think that's what they should do. It's made for very many unhappy people. I've had lots of young people in tears because they wanted to help the environment and their parents want them to go into business to make money, money, money. So support your child. And the child may have a crazy idea, like little boys want to be engine drivers. Well, they probably won't be, and they'll change. But don't crush the child and say, no, I don't want you to be an engine driver. I want you to be a scientist or a, you know, something like that. So being a supportive mother and giving your child opportunity to interact with nature. And don't worry if the child gets dirty hands and then eats something that builds up the child's immunity. That's why so many people are allergic to things. Our health and welfare, what is it, health and, yes, their rules are so ridiculous that we're destroying childhood. Children aren't allowed to do something because somebody else might sue if, if it goes wrong. I mean, it, it's horrible. I don't know how we get out of that. But anyway, if you're a new parent, just try and support your child. Don't punish the child with physically, because that might make them become abusers in later life. But reason with them and verbally get cross. You know, my mother, again, going back to mum, she never once smacked us. But what she did, I think, was far worse. It was terrible. She would walk around the room, not saying a word, and picking up things and putting them quite loudly back down where they belonged. We hated it, but she wasn't hurting us. And she was making it very clear that we'd done something that displeased her. <laughs> so it was very clear. Yeah, there are other ways to, to teach a child. But most of all, I guess, it's allow them to play and allow them to be human, I guess. Yes, and uh, help them understand that everything they do has an impact and that we're all interconnected and one little, one little good deed can lead to many other good deeds and help them understand that when you're kind to someone, makes you feel good. Well, thank you so, so much for your time this morning. Thank you too. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you for tuning into this beautiful conversation we got to have with the ever-inspiring Dr. Jane Goodall. To learn more about her work on saving chimpanzees and inspiring every single one of us to make a difference in our daily lives, head on over to the Jane Goodall Institute website at janegoodall.org. We also invite you to subscribe to the Artipop podcast for more thought-provoking talks on parenthood, nature, sex, health, and much, much more. Until next time.